0: Welcome to the Global Council podcast,
1: where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation
0: from around the world.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Top in Tech podcast from Global Council. My name is Conan Darcy, and I'm your regular host. And I am also the senior practice lead at GC for tech, media and telecoms. As regular listeners will know, the focus of this podcast is the tech lash. Why are tech companies so unpopular with politicians, policymakers and regulators? What is driving this and where will it go next? Each month, I am joined by uh, colleagues from the various global council offices to choose a couple of issues that we want to explore in depth. This month, we're going to focus on a couple of issues. It is a calendar year of the Biden administration, and it is a year of Brexit Britain after the transitional period ended. What have both governments done in the time given to them, and what is their end-of-year scorecard as we approach the coming year? So I'm delighted to be joined by esteemed colleagues. Uh, First, I'd like to introduce Miranda Lutz, who is a legislative and policy expert Dialing in from our Washington DC office, Miranda leads specifically on our analysis of tech and competition policy driven out of Washington DC. I'm also joined by regular top in tech podcaster Megan Stagman. Megan leads much of GC's analysis on UK digital and technology policy. So, welcome to you both. Um, Look forward to the discussion today. So, Miranda, let's have Let's start with the US. The first section, let's go into the Biden administration. I'd like to sort of start with the framing. We're at the end of the first calendar year. Although tech policy maybe wasn't the core policy office offer that Biden and his team were pushing through the campaign, I think it's fair to say he was a tough on big tech candidate. And I think that also is a fair description of others who are prominent within his administration. He promised to crack down on anti-competitive practices, as well as having major concerns around disinformation. So with this in mind, do you think the Biden administration has lived up to the campaign promise? Where do you, where would you say they focus most and where would you say they have been successful? What is there, to put it, frankly, end of year scorecard?
1: Thanks, Conan, and great to be here. I think that this has truly been a, a banner year, if not for tech policy making in the U.S., at least for incidents that have really drawn in policymakers' attention to the tech industry. If you think of the SolarWinds attack at the beginning of this year, the Facebook files, major calls to, to break up big tech, we're really seeing unprecedented scrutiny on the industry. And so in that sense, Biden has certainly lived up to his campaign promise to make this a major focus of his administration. But really, I see the two prongs or two themes of the Biden administration's approach to tech. One is centered around technology as a national security priority, and the second is around reducing the power and influence of big tech. So on this first pillar, it's quite obvious the intent of this focus is to maintain the U.S. competitive edge vis-a-vis China across a host of emerging technologies, particularly semiconductors, AI, quantum computing, robotics. And the U.S. is really just waking up to the fact that they are at risk of falling behind China's advancements in this space. And so Biden has been very focused on protecting the U.S. industry, making sure that there is um, some pretty steep guardrails put up between U.S. emerging tech and China's tech, particularly around uh, facial recognition technology, using export controls to limit uh, the ability for U.S. companies to interact with uh, Chinese semiconductor firms or other uh, major telecoms companies. And that's been relatively successful. On the second pillar in terms of antitrust, I think the key guideposts is to look at who Biden has been able to appoint to the main regulatory agencies in the U.S. So top of the list is Chairwoman Lena Khan of the Federal Trade Commission, and she is really a, a relatively revolutionary person in this position. She's only 32 years old and she made her name um calling uh, for a complete ideological shift in how the U.S. views antitrust policy away from a focus on consumer harm and towards a focus on corporate competition. And then you have Jonathan Cantor at the DOJ, who is also a very progressive person that has been a very prolific critic of uh, U.S. antitrust, lack of U.S. antitrust enforcement. So I think overall for folks that are hoping for um, the U.S. to get in the game, so to speak, for tech policy, they'd probably give Biden a a B or, or B plus.
2: Thanks, Miranda. I mean, I think it's interesting from a European perspective to see the shift in the Biden administration. I think possibly uh, those in Washington maybe don't appreciate the extent to which observers in Europe are excited by the idea that the U.S. might be moving slightly closer uh, to the approach of Brussels, um, which has been the case over the past decade. Whether that is uh, somewhat exaggerated in their minds uh, is, is is to be discussed. Um, but one area where, um, where certainly Brussels and same in London, um, has been looking quite closely is that impact of China in the tech sector. Um, and I n- noticed the the phrase you used around maintaining a competitive edge has echoes of uh, what the European Commission says about open strategic autonomy. Um, can you just dwell for a moment, because we, we we grew quite familiar on the other side of the pond around how the Trump administration approached China. It was very high profile. It was very targeted at certain companies. Um, Has there been much differentiation with how the Biden administration has approached this compared to their predecessors?
1: So I actually think that there hasn't been much of a change in the way that the US has approached uh, tech and China issues, except for in the um, rhetoric space. I think Biden has tried to pursue a more diplomatic um, and open to cooperation approach with President Xi. But in terms of actual policy actions, he has there's very little daylight between him and what President Trump was trying to do. If we think back to some of the earlier actions that Biden did, one thing in particular stands out is he revoked Trump's executive order that would have effectively banned transactions with TikTok and WeChat. Now, while he did revoke that order, he replaced it with something that could arguably be more far-reaching, which is asking the Commerce Department to define what are unacceptable risks for apps that are connected to to foreign adversaries, and foreign adversaries here is a clear code for China. And so that could actually have a broader impact than just a simple one-off focus on these high-profile companies like TikTok, TikTok and, and WeChat. And similar to Trump, Biden has been particularly focused on the hardware aspect of U.S. Uh, tech policy. So continuing to use the entity list to enforce export controls, just today there was an announcement that DJI, a very large drone maker will be added to the US entity list. And so that's a clear indication that the Biden administration is hoping to push this to its fullest extent. And then there's also been an emphasis on semiconductor supply chains. Again, a through line from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. There is the potential that Congress will pass the US Innovation and Competition Act early next year, which would. Um, Like I had noted earlier, uh, invests over $52 billion for semiconductor manufacturing domestically to build out fabs and to support um, R&D. And so I think that there has been some broad continuity between the two administrations, despite the fact that Biden has tried to to carve his own path. And I think that that's going to remain. China is the big issue in U.S. politics and policy and everything, particularly tech tech policy, is viewed through a China lens.
2: Okay, well, that's that's a good summary of where we're standing in the US side of things. I'd like you, Megan, maybe just to come in on this point. Um, as we saw uh, under the Trump administration, uh, UK follows the US policy towards China, and particularly in Chinese tech, pretty closely. Things that start in DC find their way into London policy making, perhaps with a slight lag six to nine months later. Given that what Miranda has just described, you know, a lot of continuity, but also some differences in how Biden is approaching this. Have we seen much impact on how the UK is approaching Chinese tech over the past year?
0: I think that um, we're probably still going to continue to see the UK following the US on this issue. Um if we look at last year um, under the Trump administration, obviously, there was a lot of pressure on the UK to follow the US's lead on Huawei. Um, and in a somewhat remarkable U-turn, uh, the UK government did indeed uh, bow to the pressure uh, from the states and restrict the company from its 5G network. So I think that was a case in point of the amount of impact that the US has on the UK's China policy. However, we've continued to see this um, more recently uh, under Biden as well. So last week, um, the UK announced that it would be following the US's lead in not sending government delegations to the Beijing Winter Olympics, which is um, a big diplomatic statement, of course. Um, similarly, Miranda mentioned the uh, US Treasury announcement about the investment blacklist um, with companies like DJI, also facial recognition uh, software companies SenseTime. time. And we've seen u k parliamentarians again calling for uh, the u k government to follow the u s and do something quite similar um, over here as well, so I think it's likely that um if the Biden administration becomes less focused on individual companies and pursues a different policy angle, it's very possible the u k will follow suit
2: yeah it's interesting in some ways they' sort of that they've they've gone away from focusing on certain individual companies through executive orders in the sort of style that, that that Trump was following but we've seen as you've both commented the use of blacklists for certain uh, companies now um, it's going to be interesting because we've seen the dynamic when uh, it's not just a straight up the US does something and the UK government follows it's the US acts conservative backbenchers in parliament apply pressure and then often the UK government adjusts its position as a result so What will be interesting, I think, for those interested on the line is to look out for what does the Conservative research group in Parliament and others do around uh, DGI and others who have just been added to the blacklist? Will we see increasing calls for those to be blocked in the UK as well? And that will be a good, I suppose, indication of the extent to which the UK is a follower on this topic um, rather than charting its own independent course. So let's jump back to the Biden scorecard at Miranda, you spent a lot of time at the start talking about how the Biden administration is trying to use antitrust and regulatory authorities as a way of exerting control over the tech sector and ensuring that they are sufficiently regulated. Um, However, we've seen prominent members of the administration be quite vocal in criticising what's happening in Europe on this agenda, which Given what the Biden administration have said, you would have thought they'd be quite closely aligned. Specifically, there were comments attacking the Digital Markets unit uh, in the past week or so. Uh, digital Markets Act, apologies. Um, can you just give a bit of context um, what's going on here?
1: Sure. And I think that this is a a good example that the Democratic Party is is not a monolith. You saw the Secretary of Commerce, uh, Gina Raimondo, make those comments, particularly criticizing the DMA. And then uh, Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren kind of clapped back, um, saying that Biden is still very much focused on antitrust policy. And I think that it's important to take a step back to maybe put a little context here. Um, Biden is not a traditional uh big tech anti-tech candidate. He was essentially dragged there during the 2020 um, presidential campaign by the likes of Senators Warren and Senator Sanders, who took a really robust approach to the, the tech industry. So this is not a pet policy issue for him. And if you think back to when he was in the, the Obama administration, President Obama had a very welcoming attitude towards big tech. Obviously sentiments have shifted and thus President Biden has has had to follow. But I think that there is still a common understanding in the US that we are not going to follow, or at least we are not going to immediately follow the path that the EU has taken. You had mentioned that the EU might have exaggerated hopes of the US uh, drawing nearer to its uh, regulatory framework, and I think that's right on the nose. The U.S. is still very um, opposed to the ex-ante approach. It's far more comfortable with an ex-post approach. And it's not just leaders at the Commerce Department that have criticized this. Um, We've heard from our contacts at the State Department that the U.S. is pretty deeply opposed to how the DMA defines gatekeepers, particularly because it only targets U.S. companies. And I think that this just highlights this kind of cross-purpose or tension within the Biden approach where you know, cabinet members are going to want to protect U.S. industry abroad from any sort of potential risks. But at home, they're going to try and pursue their own regulatory crackdowns.
2: So in sum, nationality matters when it comes to tech. I was also struck as you were talking there, Miranda, about this transition from the Obama era uh, for very pro-big tech to um, a much harder position now under Biden with sort of Trump in between. It, it, we've had, seen a similar course in the UK where the Cameron administration was uh, very uh, very well known for being close to big tech and encouraging of some of the larger players. We've seen a much harder position uh, in the UK develop over recent years. And you, you just wonder if the, the political constituency for big tech is, is narrowing ever, ever by the day, uh, not to mention the same dynamic being seen uh, in Brussels. Can we just... Uh, focus back onto that. So Nationality Matters, going to defend defend them abroad, but regulate them at home. So if they're not going to do ex ante, if they're not going to do Digital Markets Act equivalent, I mean, what are we talking about then? Is it break up the big tech or something a little bit more modest?
1: I think it's going to have to be more modest. One, in recognition that the congressional math does not favour um, a broad sweep of new antitrust legislation and so Regulators are going to have to operate under their existing statutory frameworks. So I think we'll see the FTC in particular start to roll out some rulings in 2022. Um, The commission released a document that they are looking at defining unfair methods of competition, as well as putting some specificity around unfair deceptive acts or practices. So that'll be a bit of a game changer in terms of what the FTC can um, can do, but it's it's worth remembering that rulemakings at the FTC in particular take at minimum a year, most likely years to come into force, and they have to go through multiple public comment um, periods and, and iterations. And so I think on the back of that, you'll see more Aggressive enforcement cases—you'll see the FTC and the DOJ looking for bigger fines, more aggressive re- remedies, um, you know, potentially divestment of certain assets. And there'll be some key guideposts that companies should uh, watch out for. You know, one—the uh, FTC's blocking of Nvidia's acquisition of ARM—is particularly notable. And then you've got the DOJ's case against Google, which is likely to play out in, in 2023 but they are considering adding additional um, suits under that. So I think that we'll continue with the the piecemeal and ad hoc approach via enforcement, even though that's not necessarily what the Biden administration would like to see. But given the congressional constraints, um, it will be just a, a far more conventional approach, as you mentioned.
2: So in a funny way, the Biden administration is moving to a position that more or less where the EU and the UK were a few years ago and had been calling for the Americans to come closer. The problem in the interim is that uh, while the US has shifted closer to the EU, the EU has moved further away. Um, and that brings us round, Megan, just to quickly focus on, on the UK. I mean, the UK has its own version of the DMA, doesn't it? The digital markets uh, unit. Um, Do you think the government or the Competition and Markets Authority in the UK are are worried about the criticism that the Americans have been levelling at the DMA? Do you think they are uh, one eye nervously back uh, towards the states as they develop their regulatory framework?
0: So I guess firstly, I'd just say that... um, I wouldn't call it the Digital Markets Unit a version of the DMA exactly, although it obviously has clear parallels in terms of looking at digital competition. Um, there are actually a few kind of important differences between them. Firstly, that the DMA um, is a predetermined set of rules, while the CMA's Digital Markets Unit um, is more about a set of principles and a code of conduct, which gives them a degree of flexibility um, in enacting that. Um, It's also important to point out perhaps differences in enforcement. So while the DMA is proposing more restricted powers, for example, with structural remedies, um, they're only limited to repeat offenders. The DMU will have a lot more flexibility in terms of how it can enforce its rules, for example, um, imposing pro-competitive interventions um, and also reviewing acquisitions by so-called strategic market status or SMS firms. Um, But In short, yes, I would say that there are some parallels between the UK and the US approach. Um, And I would point to the fact that uh, even the same companies are in question in the UK to the ones that Miranda just mentioned. So, for example, NVIDIA's acquisition of Arm is currently undergoing a phase two in-depth investigation by the CMA. in terms of Google, which you also mentioned, the CMA is investigating its privacy sandbox. um, And this week, it made an announcement about concerns about the mobile ecosystem as well. So I think there are probably quite a lot of parallels in terms of how they're approaching this.
2: So in fact, the UK isn't just aping the the EU system, it's actually got a model that borrows some elements of it but is actually close to what the u.s is doing in a number of uh, different ways well i think probably with that we can move um we, we've we've explored the biden administration let's move on um to the second part of our discussion which move which is going to explore brexit britain um part of the selling point of uh, Brexit was the idea that we'd have regulatory autonomy, we'd get to make our own rules. Obviously, tech was not a big issue in that for the voters. um, But it was quite a big issue for some of the architects of Brexit. So if you look back at previous comments of Michael Gove or Dominic Cummings, regulations like the General Data Protection Regulation were very firmly in their sights, and they were essentially the archetypal examples of what they saw as onerous regulation that would inhibit the growth of the British economy. So in that sense, tech was pretty prominent to the worldview uh, of Brexit and the global Britain agenda we see before ourselves. So there should be, in the terms that the government would use, a Brexit dividend uh, that we should have capitalised on in the past year and into next um, on the tech side of policy, so let's start with the same question that I posed uh, to Miranda Megan. Given that context, do we think over the past year the British government has been successful in its uh, approach in tech? Will it will it pat itself on the back and give itself an A star, or have there been more choppy waters uh, along the way? And what exactly have they focused on in fulfilling the tech Brexit dividend?
0: Well, I think we can certainly say that they were ambitious in the tech sector, as you point out. Um, This was perhaps articulated most clearly in uh, the Department for Digital, DCMS's 10 tech priorities that was published earlier this year. Um, And I can talk about a couple of those as examples. So firstly, they pointed to increasing online safety. um, And this has largely been through the vehicle of the online safety bill um which has been very high profile recently and i think the uk government would probably give itself a pat on the back for that it has been significantly delayed i mean this was first looked at in white paper form uh, quite a few years ago now um but even so i think the government feels that it's leading the charge on online safety it's taken um a bolder approach than uh, others have so i think generally that's a positive um However, on other issues, I think there's been less clear action. Uh, For example, on AI, uh, there's been quite a lot of positioning and rhetoric. Uh, We saw the AI strategy come out this year, but the real uh, policy decisions have been punted to later. um, And we're yet to see quite so much uh, action. So, for example, we're getting an AI white paper at the beginning of next year, um, which will be where the government sets out its decision on whether it's going to have a legislative framework across different sectors or whether it's going to carry on with its current approach of dealing with it um, in verticals. So less action there. Data was another big uh, priority for the government. Um, and there, certainly, we've seen uh, the wheels beginning to turn. We had a consultation this summer Um which was looking at how the GDPR could possibly be reformed and how the UK could better use data um, to reduce some of the burdens on businesses. Um, Obviously, they're looking at that through the lens of needing to be careful to not jeopardise the EU data adequacy agreement. So there are some political sensitivities around that. But even so, the UK seems um, adamant to make that one of the Brexit dividends that you mentioned Um, And then the final thing I'll flag is digital trade, because um, I think this is a big part of the so-called global Britain um, uh, idea and philosophy. Um, And, for example, last week we saw the government's Board of Trade publish a report about the opportunities that it foresaw in digital trade. Um, We've seen digital trade agreements uh, being negotiated. Uh, We saw one between the G7 countries. To tackle digital protectionism, for example. So, again, there's been some action there, but probably we'll see even more in 2022. Um, And to take all of that in sum, I would say it's been quite a big year for tech policy in the UK.
2: I just want to linger on one point there, Megan. You mentioned the data reforms and you mentioned that there would be a reduction in administrative compliance obligations for businesses. When we think about this in the round, it starts to sound a little bit more like, the approach that is taken in the US rather than the stricter, more formalised approach we've seen in the EU towards data protection terms. Uh, Is that just a coincidence or is it fair to characterise what the UK government is trying to do in those terms?
0: So I think, as I mentioned, uh, one of the ambitions with this policy process is to reduce compliance burdens on businesses. Uh, The government said that it wanted uh, data policy in the UK to be based on common sense, as it called it, rather than box ticking, um, which is obviously an attack uh, at the GDPR um, as it sees it. So I do think we're going to see um, a bit of a shift in terms of how businesses have to comply with data policy. Another area where um, the government is keen to make change is in removing uh, perceived barriers to cross-border data flows. Um, This is, as you might expect, causing some concern in the European Parliament about what that might look like in practice. So again, uh, it's something that the government is gonna have to navigate carefully if it doesn't want to jeopardize its data adequacy agreement. The final thing I would point out is how they are looking at reforming the uh, data protection regulator, the ICO, firstly looking to give it more accountability, but also suggesting that they want uh, the regulator to look more at serious threats and kind of high profile individual cases, perhaps, or systemic uh, threats, rather than high volumes of low level uh, breaches of GDPR. So, again, this is going to be a bit about kind of positioning and putting... uh, the UK data protection regulator at the forefront of tackling serious issues rather than just enforcing GDPR on a daily basis.
2: So in some sense, it is a nod towards the approach taken in the US, but these changes are, are significant, but they are not wholesale. So the UK is moving to a somewhere in between position between the EU and the US on this. But maybe we can just bring Miranda in very quickly. It's always slightly staggered me that on global data protection standards are being set out of Brussels. And the US seems to be a bit of a bystander here, regardless of the rights and wrongs of whether you think that the EU framework is the right one, and if the US should replicate that. The US is essentially abdicating the field. um, And it's the EU and to a lesser extent, countries like the UK that are setting those global standards. I mean, Is there any push, serious push in Washington for there to be a federal privacy law or is that just pie in the sky?
1: I don't think that there's a a serious push. um, Largely... Because the broader tech lash, the concerns about content moderation, the tech liability shield, antitrust, it's really muddied the waters for data privacy. And so now it's much harder for legislators to focus just on data privacy because anytime they do, um, we think of it kind of as a, as a Christmas tree. All of these other ornaments and all these other issues get hung on to the, the core um, bill and so that's been a been a problem um i think that you know in our conversations with the policy makers and experts there's an increasing um you know acknowledgement that the us is going to be a regulatory taker in terms of data privacy despite the fact that you do get flare-ups of focus on you know third-party data brokers and the like that lawmakers, in theory, would like to put some, um, you know, regulation and, and structure around, but it's just quite hard to do so. And then finally, the the Biden administration has um, certainly abdicated leadership on, on data privacy. It is rarely mentioned. It is not one of his, um, you know, focuses in terms of of tech policy. And so when you don't have that leadership at the top, it's quite hard to move anything. Um, I will note we do have just one um, initial inkling um, that Biden may look towards data privacy in the future with the Commerce Department's National Telecommunications and Information Administration's listening sessions this week on equity and and civil rights. And that is on looking at um, how commercial use of personal data could potentially disproportionately disproportionately harm underserved communities and that is very much in line with the administration's focus on equity um, across a, a broad issue set so
2: essentially there is a there's a role here maybe for the UK as to sort of bridge the two different uh, the two different approaches and maybe maybe with the EU taking a very a strict approach, the UK may provide an alternative model to how data protection standards can be set globally, um, and pioneer that, despite being a much smaller jurisdiction. I suppose the jury's out on that one, and we'll we'll see over the coming years. Let's let's move on, though, Megan. You talked a lot about the online safety bill. Indeed, we've talked about it a lot on previous podcasts. Um, I know that uh, earlier this week. Um, We had the uh, report of the Joint Committee in Parliament on the bill, and we know that the uh, government is uh, currently redrafting the draft bill. Um, Can you just sort of give listeners a bit of a headline just on where is this up to? What, What are we now expecting or what can we anticipate will come out early next year from this process?
0: Well, as you say, I think we'll probably have to wait and see what the bill looks like when it's introduced to Parliament in Q1 of next year. Um, The report that was published this week is interesting because there are a number of key concepts and provisions that are now under new scrutiny and pressure to change. Um, So, for example, uh, this can be as broad as which companies are in scope. Uh, they're looking at uh, revamping the categorization system to particularly focus on risk and reach uh, rather than size, um, potentially ex- um, extending the scope to Internet society services as well, um, with the primary intention there be to, be to bring pornography websites uh, into scope. But... Uh, commentators are concerned about which other companies that might also bring in by accident. Um, We're also seeing some of the key concepts such as legal but harmful um, potentially overturned or at least uh, looked at again, um, perhaps to be replaced by putting more criminal offences on the face of the bill instead and therefore giving more clarity to tech companies about uh, what they need to be moderating. There's whole categories of other content that might now be looked at as well. For example, online scams and fraud um, is a big topic that's been under a lot of pressure in the last few months. And I think although government has fought back against this so far, it's quite likely that they're gonna have to budge on that and include it in the bill after all. And then maybe more specificity on certain technological uh, features as well. So with child safety being a priority in the bill, Uh, there are calls for greater specificity on age assurance. And the joint committee suggested that there be a mandatory technology code um, to set some standards for what that might look like. Obviously, tech companies will be watching that closely um, because it will have an impact on how they age gate their platforms. And maybe one final thing I'll add, which is just ongoing scrutiny, which I think is quite an interesting um, precedent to set with legislation. The Digital Secretary, Nadine Doris, has also uh, suggested that she's in favor of potentially establishing a permanent committee to look at this legislation and think about potential new risks and how those interact with the bill. Um, We don't really see that with other legislation, so it'll be interesting to see if that's taken up by the government um, and if it is, how that actually operates in practice.
2: So it sounds to me like a bit of a mixed bag for any companies listening on the line. Removing legal but harmful content from the scope of the bill, I suppose, would be a very welcome clarification um, and would help companies work out how to moderate uh, and, and comply with the law in their content moderation. However, various aspects around much more precise age verification, um, the inclusion of online scams and fraud all seem like uh, significant additions to what we saw in the draft bill published earlier this year. And I suppose when we take it in sum, Megan, regardless of what the end products looks like, this bill is essentially a major increase in the compliance burden that will be faced by companies, and a lot of those will be US tech companies. Um, Does this not run counter to the global Britain narrative we were talking about earlier?
0: I would say not really, because global Britain isn't just about trade. Obviously, that's the bit that um, we perhaps hear most about. But in 2020, we also heard a lot of language about uh, part of global Britain being to make the UK a stronger force for good in the world. And I think that fits quite neatly under that category. Uh, We've also seen the UK wanting to take a more robust position on security and safety, which it also aligns with. So um I would say no it doesn't uh, go against it it perhaps even aids it um and I think the UK really intends to be a champion for online safety and hopes that others will follow in its lead so in the same way that the EU led on GDPR I think the UK is hoping that um others will be watching its uh, online safety bill development and perhaps replicating that in its um in their own respective companies uh countries Um, The final thing I would say is just that given the significance of the UK market, I think the UK government is also quite uh, complacent. It isn't overly concerned about losing tech companies altogether and therefore thinks that it's in quite a strong position to be setting these new regulatory requirements.
2: Yeah, and I think this possibly points to a distinction in the minds of British politicians between making a conducive environment to attract inward investment and to get startups and venture capital, the innovators as they see them in the tech sector, and then big tech are treated in a slightly different uh, sub-segment and essentially there is consensus that they can be regulated for all the reasons that you've just laid out. I suppose it would be very interesting, Miranda, to just touch on uh, this point with you uh, as we draw uh, this conclusion Uh, in our conversation. Um, Is the US going to be a follower again in this? The EU has got its Digital Services Act. The UK will soon have its online safety bill. We've all seen big tech executives hauled in front of Congress and sort of told off and uh, told to do better. But are we actually going to see them regulated? Will we see a US online safety bill?
1: I think that that This issue, um, like many of the others we've discussed, is going to be another instance of the U.S. lagging pretty far behind where the EU and UK are. Uh, Certainly there was a lot of scrutiny, a lot of noise post-Facebook files, but... This is um, more bark than bite at this point in time. There has been some legislation that would amend certain parts of the um, tech liability shield so that companies that are knowingly using an algorithm that would recommend content that contributes to physical or emotional harm would no longer be covered by the liability shield. But right now that only has democratic support. And really, it comes down to this just intractable gridlock in Washington, D.C. on this issue, because even though there is a lot of attention from both Republicans and Democrats on online content moderation, they're coming at it from very different parts of the spectrum. Republicans from the censorship perspective, perspective, and Democrats from the disinformation and consumer harm perspective. So Again, I think this might be an area where the FTC could take un- undertake a ruling. Um, there's the Children's Online Privacy Protection Rule, which even though it passed in the late 1990s, is still the um, benchmark legislation in this area. And the FTC could use that as the statutory basis to pursue a, a rulemaking that would re- institute more requirements for companies.
2: So we might see something, but not entirely the equivalent of the comprehensive regimes that are being cooked up in in London and Brussels. So thanks for the the, the in-depth conversation on those those two points, but one thing we've sort of danced around a little bit is the UK-US relationship. We've referred to often the UK following the US or the UK setting standards that the US is not willing to move forward with. Um, but what's going on directly between those two governments on tech policy? And in particular, we've seen the the TTC, the Trade and Tech Council between the EU and the US, get up and running, which seems to be the main show in town for global tech regulation. So is the UK on the outside looking in? Is Washington interested in what London thinks around these issues? Um, I'd like to ask you both a variant of that question but maybe megan do you want to start and then miranda we can turn to you for the dc perspective
0: sure so i think um as you say the ttc has definitely been the most high profile uh relationship built um this year in terms of tech cooperation um but the uk has tried to do some variants of that um of its own. So for example, in June, um, we saw a science and tech partnership announced between Biden and Johnson, that would be looking at quantum tech, 6g digital standards, things like that. So we have seen uh, some version of that. We also see kind of some ad hoc collaboration on tech policy. For example, last week, um, the UK and US governments committed to cooperating on developing privacy enhancing technologies. So every time something like that happens, uh, it obviously further consolidates their collaboration on tech. And I think more broadly than that, uh, the UK will definitely also want to be making sure that its data transfers with the US remain on a strong legal footing um, and that there's a UK-specific replacement to the privacy shield if the EU and US negotiations fail.
2: Miranda, does that stack up to you? Anything to, you know, different perspectives, or are you sort of in, in alignment there?
1: I think that the Megan um, anal- Megan's analysis is is correct. Um, I'd just add that the US is focused on the EU because they are the the problem child, so to speak. They are certainly the big regulatory makers in this space, and that is why you see um, Washington DC so focused on on Brussels. That's not to say that there aren't opportunities for the UK and um, US to engage on these matters, but they'll be second tier to the EU-US efforts.
2: Well, look, thank you. Thank you both. Um, that was a great session. So um, Miranda, I look forward to having you uh, back on in the new year to join uh, the regular cast of podcasters from Brussels and London. To those listening, uh, if you, your business or your investment is exposed to some of the trends we've described, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find the contact details for Miranda and Megan and our sectoral teams on the GC website, which is www.global-council.com, or you can find it via the link in the podcast notes. Our next pod will be in January. Um, so until then, Merry Christmas, have a happy new year, and we'll see you then.
1: For more insights, blogs, and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.com, and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter
0: at Global underscore Council.